0: following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Well, uh, as you may have already figured out, today marks the beginning of Advent for 2021, and I am Personally, very excited for our series this year and and the kind of unique angle that we're going to uh, approach it from. But before I explain the series, I want to quickly explain Advent. Um, I I know that for many of you, it may seem redundant that I I cover this territory every year, but if you'll remember, uh, I've shared with you that, that I did not grow up in a church tradition that observed Advent. And so I'm always keenly aware that some folks may not be familiar with its meaning and its purpose. So it's worth taking just a couple minutes to kind of lay that out in case someone else uh, isn't familiar with what we're talking about. So the the word advent, it comes from the Latin word adventus. And that word means arrival or coming. And uh, though it wasn't always the case for much of the church's history... It's been a celebration and a reminder that Jesus has come as was promised and will come again as was promised. And so uh, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we pause whatever uh, series we're in and we set our eyes and our hearts on the past and the future fulfillment of these promises And for me, just personally, I very much appreciate this practice because I think there is such a strong temptation to miss the point of Christmas each year. I think many of you could probably understand what I mean when I say that. Gift giving can be a wonderful reminder of the fact that God gave us the greatest gift possible in Christ, but it can also become a, a pressurized distraction from that truth. Family traditions and and gatherings, they can be intentional times to celebrate and remember that we have been swept up into the eternal family of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But even those times of family gathering and those traditions, they too can also become distractions that overshadow the true reason that this season is so special. And, And so I just want you to know and I'm hoping you'll join me, my prayer every year is that through our observance of Advent, we're getting out ahead of our sometimes fickle nature, and we're setting our hearts and minds upon the glorious miracle of the incarnation. What does that mean? It's God becoming a man so that he could save us from our sin. And so I hope that you will join me in that prayer over your church family, and over your own mind and heart. Uh, Our Advent series this year is called Hark, uh, and it might remind you, uh, many of you, uh, of uh, what some would consider to be the greatest hymn of all time. And it's no coincidence that we opened this Advent series by singing this song. Uh, It's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And and this is indeed the inspiration for the direction that we're going to head this year. In our Advent series, this song "Hark the Herald Angels Sing" it first appeared in, in 1739. It was written by Charles Wesley, who is the brother of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. Uh, John Wesley's name is typically a bit more well known, but Charles was, was right in there in the trenches with him in the beginning of that movement. Wrote many hymns. Uh, the original version of "Hark the Herald Angels Sing" it, it's said to contain references to roughly 40 different scriptures. Okay, so there's, and look, I'm not, I I believe God is doing new things all the time, and it's great, and modern music God is using, and much of that is is great, but man, there's something to the richness of some of these older hymns. Uh, 40 scriptures referenced in one song. Uh, That's, it's a bit different than the uh, more, most common current offerings you get out of Christian music. But I digress. Let's not get on that. You guys, don't try to pull me into harping on that. That's not the point, okay? The point is, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is a really scripturally rich, theologically rich, doctrinally rich song. And uh, that's part of why it, you know it's a good launch pad for us here. The, the word hark, you know, you're probably not running around using that in your everyday vernacular. Uh, it basically means listen, okay? Or pay attention. It's not... It's not listen like, you know, with no exclamation point. It's, it's got one on there. Listen. Something important is about to be said. Something important is about to happen, right? And so uh, you will find this word used in some older Bible translations in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, but most modern translations when you read uh, will just say listen in place of the word hark. Uh, as I was praying back in September about Advent this year, The prominence, something struck me that I'm not sure I had thought of maybe in this way, but the prominence of angelic involvement in the events around Christ's birth, it was brought to my remembrance. And so this is kind of a unique lens that that we're going to approach uh, from this Advent season. And we're going to start today with the angel announcing the birth of John the Baptist to his father, Zacharias. And so we're going to kind of trace the angelic involvement. There seems to be a, an influx of angelic involvement surrounding the events of the birth of Christ. That's what I'm saying. And so we're going, to, we're going to focus our lens and use that as our guide to weave our way through the Christmas story this year. It's a little different approach. And I'm, I'm really excited about what I think it's going to cause us to, to stumble into. Amen. And so uh, if you would, did I ask you to turn to Luke 1? I didn't? Well, that was a bummer on my part. So turn to Luke 1. That's right after Mark and right before John. And uh, how the heck did I miss that? Sorry, guys. Luke 1, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 20. Now, you might be thinking, I could see perhaps the wheels turning. Uh, You might be thinking, well, hold on. You're going to start with the angelic announcement around the birth of John the Baptist. To his father Zacharias, so, well, I thought we were supposed to be focusing on the birth of Jesus. Well, what's the deal with that? And I would, say, I would say, friends, rest assured, we are focusing on the birth of Jesus, but but God promised a certain process leading up to His coming, and the birth of John is a very important part of that process, and it's going to kind of open us up to even more that we can consider around God's faithfulness to His promises, which is a lot of what we want to be focused on the next. Several weeks, okay? God's faithfulness to his promises. Amen. So I hope you found Luke 1. As I said, we're going to read verses 5 through 20, okay? Here we go. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord, their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Praise God for his word. Amen. Zacharias is a bold brother telling this angel his wife's advanced in years. Maybe that was why Gabriel shut him up for a minute to help, you know, just help him out. Bro, let's take a seat for a second and uh, maybe rethink what you say, okay? Uh, So here's, before I crack into this text and we really get to work in earnest, I need to lay some groundwork that's going to be very important for this entire Series. Okay, there there is. I'm excited about this angle we're taking. I think it's a different way to approach the Christmas story, but there's a potential danger in weaving our way through it using the lens of angelic announcements. Okay, so I want to make sure that we have some guardrails up as we do this. Okay, first of all, uh, let's not take for granted uh, this question Who are the angels? Okay, What, what are angels? Well, they're created beings. That's important to know. So they are not eternal in the same sense that God is as far as having always existed and never having a beginning, okay? They are created beings like all of the other beings besides God himself, all right? Uh, Angels are servants of God, okay? Uh, And they are often tasked with the job of being God's messengers, okay? Uh, And that's the role we're going to see them fulfill in this and upcoming weeks, Uh, It's important to know that some of the angels joined Satan in his treasonous rebellion against God, and they will join him in eternal fire, this reserved for them in the final day of judgment. The Bible's clear about that. Uh, There are only two angels that are named in the scriptures. Those are Gabriel, the angel that brought this announcement to Zacharias, and Michael. Michael's referenced in Jude, also in the book of Daniel. Uh... This next thing I'm going to say may be disappointing to some of you. I'm hoping not many. Uh, if, it, if this does strike you as a shock, I, I'd, I want you to know I'm going to hang out after the service. I'm assuming I may have angel questions after the service. I'm just thinking it might happen. I'm going to hang out up here a minute. And uh, if you've got questions or this like, really is a kind of a world rocker for you, you know, come see me. I'd, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. But Some of you might be disappointed to find out you will not become an angel when you die. And nobody else has or will either. The Bible teaches clearly that humans and angels are different beings created by God for different purposes. Okay? Now, I would say although we do share in the same ultimate purpose, which is to glorify God and worship him forever. All right? Uh, It's very important for us to realize that angels should not be worshipped. Okay? Nor... I'm going to take it farther than that. Nor should we have an undue infatuation with them, which can be a distraction of our focus on and worship of God. Let me read you a couple references uh, to kind of solidify that, that strong point that I just made. I don't mean that you have to agree that it's a strong point. I'm just making it strongly. And now I'm going to give you some verses to back it up, okay? Okay. I'm saying unequivocally, worship, angels should not be worshipped, nor should we have an undue infatuation with them, okay? That's my thesis. Here's my backup. Revelation 22, 8 and 9. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things, and he said to me, do not do that. <laughs> Well, Pastor Vince, I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do with you after that. Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brothers, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Okay? Colossians 2.18. Take care that no one keeps defrauding you of your prize by delighting in humility and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, all right? Angels should not be worshiped. They are not the focus of the scriptures. God is. However, there's a lot of angels in the Advent story. And so we're gonna trace their announcements as kind of our map for our series, all right? Just wanna make sure we keep this in proper context. Uh, I think last thing I'm gonna say about this, there's, there's many uh, that wonder if angels still appear to people today. There's nothing in scripture that, that tells us they won't. Um, you know, I'm going to be like Paul here in some places. This is my, I'm going to give you a personal opinion. Uh, I personally believe it would be more likely that an angel would appear to someone who does not follow Jesus than someone who does. And here's why I'm saying that. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. It's okay. It's just my opinion. Here's why I'm saying it though. Followers of Jesus have his perfect word from which to know his will as well as the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, So if one of the primary ways that angels interact with humans is as messengers, we have the perfect word of God and we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So if an angel has to show up to a believer, it might be because we aren't listening to either of those properly. Okay, do with that what you will. Okay, so, (laughs) um, and look, I... The Bible definitely doesn't say angels won't appear, that angels are not still being used by God to uh, intervene in the affairs that are happening on earth. I, I believe they surely are. Uh, but I think sometimes, again, I, just, I have a concern around this undue infatuation with angels and that maybe you, know, you might be thinking, wow, I'd, my faith would really be bolstered if I could just see an angel. And it's like, man, you've got... You've got the perfect Word of God, and if you belong to Jesus, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, man. You've got something one million times better than, you know, and that's an arbitrary number. Pick, pick your number than, than, than an angelic visitation, right? I mean, Zacharias would tell you, I would have much rather <laughs> had this plainly spelled out in the Word, had the Holy Spirit lead me in this, than have to, have to deal with an angel and then get struck dumb until my son was born. That was a bummer, Right? Should have quit talking about Elizabeth when Jane around, <laughs> yeah, husbands know about that, huh? We get together with the bros we 're all sassy about this and that and the other thing, and yeah, let the wives show up and watch us snap to attention, quit talking crazy, right? <laughs> oh, sorry if that was a if I let let the secret out on the bros there i didn't mean to violate the brotherhood all right, so now that now that I, I, now I feel better. I don't know if you do. I feel better that we've put some barriers up uh, to keep us out of error. So let's, let's look at the text together, all right? So I've, I've grouped verses one through 10 together. Uh, sorry, five through 10 together. Let's, let's just look at those again. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. They were both advanced in years. I almost went off on a rabbit trail there, but I'm going to leave it. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. If you think you knew what my rabbit trail was there, come see me afterwards. I'll have a prize for you if you figured it out. But don't be distracted by that the rest of the service, okay? Okay. Now, here's one thing we need to know about this. You know, we read this like, okay, yep, I get it. But we need to understand this was, this was a great honor. That Zacharias was chosen to be the priest burning the incense. Um, and this was potentially a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zacharias. Uh, estimates w- would, you know, on average you'll see estimates around, that in the time of Jesus, there was roughly 20,000 priests, uh, and they, you know, obviously that was translated down from generations before, and uh, you know, established in the law of Moses and all that. And so, but there's twenty thousand priests. So if you if you do some rough math, if 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 we're casting lots and only one person uh, at a time gets to burn incense, that doesn't leave many opportunities uh, for everybody. And so this, my point is, it's just important for us to know this was a big deal. This was a very special moment for Zacharias. Something that uh, he had probably hoped for for a long time. And now it's here. Okay. Now we, we read in here that the way he was chosen was by casting lots. And you'll hear that throughout the scriptures. I've, let's just take a minute and talk about that. Okay. So what is casting lots? I mean, th- think about it kind of like throwing dice or, you know, it, it could be little colored stones or stones with markings on it, or even little sticks with markings on it. But basically You'd have a handful of these things and you'd throw them down and then however it landed, that would be interpreted to mean, okay, that guy got picked or that guy didn't or whatever, right? So the specifics around what the lots that were used look like, those implements is not super clear, but that's basically the idea. And so this was used throughout the Old Testament oftentimes in the time of Jesus when a decision needed to be made. Uh, you you might remember that even, uh, when Judas betrayed Jesus and hung himself, the disciples cast lots to decide who would replace him, right? And the lot fell to Matthias. Now here's what's interesting about that. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to take a hard position here. I'm just saying this makes sense to me. And there's other theologians that think so too. There are theologians that think so too. Let me not put myself in the, in the rank of theologian, uh, we see no instance of believers casting lots after the day of Pentecost. You don't see it happen anymore. Uh, which to me likely means that we now rely on the leading of the Holy Spirit in decision-making instead. I actually agree with uh, Bible teachers who would call into question the legitimacy of Matthias's apostleship. I think potentially that 12th apostle uh, was, was Paul, okay? Um, but you know, do with that what you will. <clears throat> uh, so we also see here the practice of burning of incense. What's that about? Well, burning of incense in the temple, it was a practice instituted in the time of Moses. Okay, so this was not out of order. This was a right thing to do in this time. And as as the smoke of the incense rose upward, it, it was in one way, it was a it was a visual representation for the people of, of their prayers rising. To God, and I just want you to know that that now, uh, post Christ's life, death, resurrection, and all the instruction we have in the New Testament, we now have clear instruction that it is through faith in Jesus that our prayers reach the throne of God. Okay, and so that's why we're not burning incense in here. All right, so I, I just want you to know, like, don't be bringing your apple cinnamon flavored incense up in here enlighten it in the middle of worship and waving it around, okay? (laughs) Because there's smoke alarms in here and it'll be a major issue, all right? So we don't need incense. Our faith is that because of Christ, right? Our eternal advocate, the one who stood in our place, that as we pray in the name of Jesus, that our prayers reach the inclined ear of our father who awaits those prayers and and delights in the prayers of his people, So we don't don't need to see some smoke rising to remind us which way our prayers head. Amen. Thank God for the full revelation of his word and the full revelation we have in Christ. Amen. All right, so that brings us to verses 11 through 16. Let's look at those again. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For you will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn away and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Amen. Now almost every account okay, throughout the scripture of an angelic appearance, you will see the angel having to tell the person or people seeing them not to be afraid, okay? And what does that tell us? That tells us probably that the holiness of their presence and that radiant light from them dwelling continually in God's presence, it must be truly terrifying to behold with mere human eyes. Because I, I struggle to think of an example of a time when an angel pops up and doesn't have to say, chill out, it's okay, right? <laughs> Don't be afraid. So th- when you see that kind of consistency, um, <laughs> you know, here's your sign, right? So, uh <clears throat> Let me let me just quickly I don't have anything in my notes about this. I don't want it to be a distraction, though. Just so for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, he will drink no wine or liquor, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. This is is likely a reference, we're not sure, but to what's known as a Nazarite vow. Uh, there, there's this idea that John would be would be consecrated for the Lord's service, even, even above and beyond what maybe somebody else would. And so this was kind of a special designation. And uh you know, so it, it doesn't, that doesn't really speak to the larger discussion around Christian liberties and what it has, how that, you know, how alcohol plays into that. And I don't have time to get anywhere near all of that rabbit trail. I just wanted to briefly say, uh, the point here is John was set aside for a very special purpose that, that meant that this was a factor for him. Okay. It doesn't speak to broadly, uh, practice of Christians and what's right or wrong. Uh, I, we have addressed that at length in other sermons, um, if you want to check that out. So, amen. Just in case somebody's sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I drank some spiced eggnog. What's going to happen to me? If you kept it within biblical bounds and didn't get drunk, probably nothing. Uh, if you do get drunk, that's a sin. So knock it off. That's basically the bottom line. Amen. All right. Uh, so many have wondered what Zacharias was praying in the temple that day. Um, Many assume because of the way the angel talks that here at this time of the burning of the incense that Zacharias was praying for uh, a, a child. But I, It's possible, but I think that's unlikely. And here's why I'm going to say that. Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this is for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I am sure Zacharias and Elizabeth prayed for a very long time for a child, probably many, many times. I don't get the sense from this reaction, though, that it was probably a hope that they were still hanging on to. It was probably a dream that they had let go of. We can't know that for sure. Maybe Zacharias is up in there at the incense altar praying crazy prayers about having a kid in their old age, but it doesn't. Based on his reaction, I. I would say that seems the least likely option or a less likely option. What would have been very common, he may have been praying lots of things during his kind of one chance here at the incense altar as a priest, but it would have been common for all faithful Israelites to consistently include in their prayers that they would be asking God to send the Messiah that they were waiting for. And here's what's interesting. In either case, both of these potential prayers were answered. So whether the angel in saying your petition has been heard was referencing to petitions that were uttered long ago and were now being answered, which that can be a hard thing, right? To pray prayers and feel like they're not answered for a long time. Come on, somebody. Anybody ever felt that way before? That's real. But we see something about the timing of God versus our timing in that. Amen. Amen. So whether whether he was referencing that or he was referencing prayers of Zacharias, asking for the coming of of the Messiah, which would have almost certainly been included in his time before the incense altar, whatever he was praying, we see kind of multiple fulfillments in this promise that come. We see answers to multiple different prayers. You might be saying, well, hold on, man. Why are you saying that? Why are you saying that this, this promise, this This prophecy about John the Baptist being born, why are you tying that to the Messiah? Friends, it's because John's ministry was also prophesied to set the stage for the ministry of Jesus. It wasn't just that the coming of the Messiah was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. Also, the coming of John as a forerunner was prophesied. And so, if God made promises that one was going to come, right, to kind of make a way to... Open up the door as as Jesus began his ministry, then if he promised that, then that needs to happen first. And so this, this is where we see that unfolding, okay? You're like, well, are you sure? Yes. Let's read the next two verses. Verse 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. Now, how many of you in your Bible, him is capitalized? The H in Him. You see that? It's because it's talking about Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, what, so what do we have here? Well, what we have is the angel making abundantly obvious to somebody who knew the Hebrew scriptures as Zacharias would, what he was talking about here. Let me just read you. A couple things. This is Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is one of the first allusions pointing forward to this forerunner that was going to come, right? And we know later that John ends up being the, the locust and wild honey and camel hair guy. Where? Out in the wilderness. Where was he baptizing people? Out in the Jordan, in the wilderness, right? So this is, this is clearly pointing forward to John the Baptist. Here's something that gets even more on the head here. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. what did the angel say? He was going to come in the spirit and power of what? Elijah. Okay. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. That sounds really familiar and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and strike the land with complete destruction. Malachi 4.5 is some of the last things that God says right before there's 400 years of silence. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, right? Then we have 400 years of silence. It seems that God says nothing. And then what happens? An angel pops up at the incense altar and says, hey, Zacharias, guess what? It's happening, Right? Talk about good news. 400 years is a long time, y'all. It's a long time to think and feel God said nothing and for his people to be clinging to the promises that he had made. Man. Now, when it says that he, when the angel says here, he'll come before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, it's very important that we put some context around that and I think also some guide rails. What that does not mean is that John the Baptist was some kind of reincarnation of Elijah the prophet. Why is that important? Because that's a patently unbiblical teaching. We do not believe in reincarnation. Amen. Okay. Now, if that hit you like a lead balloon, you know, maybe you don't have angel questions. If you have reincarnation questions, come see me. I'll still be standing here. Okay. And, And look, I'm not trying to be funny. I realize that a lot of this kind of new age spiritual stuff gets woven in with Christian language, it can be very confusing, okay? But what we don't have here for sure is God saying that John the Baptist is reincarnated, some kind of circular life cycle deal, um, you know, that, that John the Baptist is the reincarnation of Elijah. How do we know that? Well, first of all, Elijah didn't die, okay? Elijah got took up by a chariot of fire. Right? That's awesome. I don't know if you like those verses. I like those verses. Like, chariot of fire, Elijah departure, that's, that's top 10 good biblical content stuff. That's pretty rad, okay? So, John the Baptist can't be a reincarnation of Elijah because the brother didn't die, okay? He rode a fire chariot to heaven, which is awesome. How does that work? I literally don't know, okay? Got nothing else for you other than what the Bible tells me about it, but I believe it, okay? Okay. Uh, <laughs> also, so Elijah didn't die, so John the Baptist can't be a reincarnation. Secondly, um, Elijah appears at the transfiguration of Jesus along with Moses, okay? So John the Baptist and Elijah are two different people. What is being said here is that the anointing and the mission of John the Baptist was going to be very similar to that of Elijah, the spirit and the power of Elijah, There was an anointing that Elijah carried with him to the point that he passed it to Elisha, right? And so this this same idea, that that power and that call uh, that was on Elijah, it's going to come through in the ministry of John the Baptist. We see that in the way that there's a a high uh, emphasis on calling people to repentance for sin, right? Elijah was about that life as well, right? Like, let's do battle with the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel and, and then let everybody know, you know, You've been worshipping worshiping false idols, and you're a bunch of fools, right? So, little, little, little harsh, little edgy, Elijah and John the Baptist, right? But they have an important mission from God in the time and place He puts them, right? Calling to people to repentance isn't easy because uh, people don't typically like that. So sometimes you you got to cut to heal. All right, Amen. Um, and that's that's what that means. So we want to be very careful about that. All right, so. This, uh, that brings us to verses 18 through 20. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. I'm not sure that everyone is aware of this. Uh, I appreciated Sister Jay alluding to it this morning. Uh, She didn't know which way I was headed here, but the the four weeks of Advent, they they are normally or traditionally marked with each week with a a specific aspect of the goodness that Christ's birth gives to us, okay? And so the order that these weeks of Advent are typically broken down is is, uh, hope, peace, joy, and love. So these different aspects of goodness that are a part of the gift we were given in Christ. Um, That's that's part of Advent tradition. It's not inspired like scripture is. You don't have to stick to it. But um, I I, I saw that pattern prevalent as I used the angelic announcements to walk myself through the Christmas story. And so we're going to do that as well. Um, And so how do I see hope here being that first week, that first aspect of the goodness of God given to us through Christ? Well, first of all, I want to call attention to the fact that I think for many of us, it, might, it may seem like striking Zacharias with muteness as a result of the question he asked, it might seem a bit harsh. Does anybody kind of feel that way or thought you're, feel yourself at least kind of asking like, well, dang, man, nine months of not getting to talk because you asked, like, how am I going to know for sure? Because we old? You know what I mean? Like, it's just facts, right? Okay, but it's, it's really, it's not, and there's, there's a reason, okay? So um, it, it served as a solid, a solid and solemn reminder to Zacharias, and it serves as one for us today, okay? To not forget, to not forget the hope that God provides. And I want to take some time to work on that because godly hope is much different than wishful thinking or positive vibes or other such nonsense, okay? Godly hope is different. It's different than how we oftentimes think of hope. It's not this kind of fanciful, wispy thing, okay? It's, it's, it's more solid than that. It's an anchor, and what do I mean by that? Well, let me, let me first try to illustrate what I mean by weak, flaccid, fanciful, silly people hope, okay? And I'm going to use myself as an example instead of any of you. Thanks, Pastor Vince. You're welcome. I'll be the heel. So when I was younger, in my teen years, uh, I got into what was then termed as aggressive rollerblading. How many of you know what aggressive rollerblading is? okay. So it'd be, you know, you'd, be like, you'd be skating up to something like this. There's an edge and I, I could jump up and sole grind this or I could front side grind this or I could do a little jump and a 180 and whatnot. Well, that's what I would have been able to do if I was any good at it. Uh, I was not. Uh, something many of you may also not know is I was uh, a bit on the, the husky side as a teen. And so based on my coordination and BMI, I really had no business in aggressive rollerblades Ever. Uh, but that's what some of my friends did, and so I wanted to participate. So, uh, some of the knee and hip injuries that I'm still dealing with today probably harken back to the rollerblading days. Uh, so, we went to a skate park one time. This was in Rockford, Illinois. It was this, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a pretty, pretty big place. And um, outside, they had what was called a 12 foot vert ramp. Now, I'm going to teach you guys some rollerblading terminology today so you can understand my illustration. A vert ramp means so it's like, it's like a half pipe, okay? Imagine half of a pipe. If you're totally new to skate terms, I'm gonna teach you something today. So you got half of a pipe and you skate back and forth on that thing and you can jump and whatnot. Again, if you're good enough to do that, which I was not. Uh, so, but when you got vert on it, that means a portion of the ramp is literally straight up and down. And so this, this 12 foot vert ramp had roughly between eight to 10 feet of vertical surface. So you gotta like drop into the thing ride that vertical surface, and then as it curves, it catches you, and then you, you know, it's lots of fun if you're coordinated enough to do it. So, so I jump in that thing. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm going to do the vert ramp. So all my buddies are inside doing other stuff, and so I try to skate. You know, I get in it and try to go back and forth, and I just can't do it, man. I can get, like, halfway up, and then I, I keep falling, and I'm like, you know, bump this. So I take my skates off, and I throw them up on top of the ramp, and I climb the back of the ramp. Get back up there. I put my skates on. I roll up to the edge, and I'm. I look at this edge for forty five minutes. I keep kind of skating back, rolling back up to it. Think it's going to change. No, still looks the same. Still looks terrifying. And so, uh, there, some people started to notice that I had been lingering there a long time. And uh, this one guy's like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go get, uh, I'm gonna go get Chris Edwards to help you." And so, again, if you're not, if you weren't hip to the skate scene, Chris Edwards was a professional rollerblader. It just so happened that this weekend we were there, they were having some kind of tournament or something. And so there was a bunch of pros there. And Chris Edwards was like a big name. Like he was one of the, one of the first big aggressive inline rollerbladers. And so somebody runs to this guy's trailer and gets him. And, and out he comes with his skates and, and, and kind of skates up to the other side of the ramp. And, and as soon as the pro skaters came out of their trailers, now the entire inside of the skate park empties. Okay, so now there's two or 300 people out at the vert ramp because now the pros are skating the vert ramp. And so Chris Edwards stands on the other side of this thing. And he's like, all right, man, here's, here's what I want you to do. And he starts trying to kind of like coach me on how to do it and not get severely injured. And uh, I had a lot of dumb friends. And so my dumb friends, uh, as, as Chris Edwards is trying to you know, help me do this the right way, they just start a chant at the bottom of the ramp. And uh, many people called me Vinny at that point. I'd prefer you don't, but whatever. Uh, So they start going, Vinny, Vinny. And then 300 people start chanting my name. And I'm like 14 and as impressionable as any other 14 year old. And so literally, you know, I, I get like tunnel vision. I can't hear Chris Edwards anymore or any of the wonderful coaching he's giving me. I just know 300 people are chanting my name and I've been on the top of this ramp now for an hour and a half. And so I roll up to the edge of it and just, I just hope I'm not gonna die. (laughs) Down I go. And so here's what happened. Uh, I basically fell the the 12 feet straight to the bottom. (laughs) Landed flat bottom on the bottom of the ramp. I was knocked out for roughly five seconds and I know that only because when I woke up, I, people were still going, oh, like that noise was still happening. So I, I was knocked out, but it was only for a second. And uh, my, my face was flat down on the ramp, arm bent all up behind me like this. I was jacked up. Why did I tell you that story and take the time to lay it out like that? I want you to have an example of what dumb human hope looks like versus what godly hope looks like. Because when I rolled up... To the edge of the ramp, I had this, this ignorant, fanciful hope that had no basis in reality that I wasn't going to get hurt. It'll probably be all right. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't at all. <clears throat> and so I quit aggressive rollerblading soon after that. <laughs> Realized it just probably wasn't for me. So <clears throat> that was not godly hope, okay? Godly hope... Godly hope is rooted in the unchanging reality of his character. It's rooted in his goodness and faithfulness. It's rooted in his sovereign power. Godly hope is rooted in real things. It's rooted in him. It's rooted in what we know about him. It's rooted in what he's shown us about him. And and that's important. It's important that we maintain that, and it's important that we have a right understanding of how that kind of hope develops. How do you get to where you have godly hope that is based upon and anchored in the truth of God's character? Well, it, it takes a process of, of walking through uh, things oftentimes that we don't like to walk through. Let me read you this from Romans 5. It, it just it gets us right to the point here. It says, therefore, I'm in verse one, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace which we stand, and we celebrate in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations. Did did you hear that? Wow. Because we're justified in Christ, and because what that shows us about the way God does things, we're called to, to do what now? To celebrate in our tribulations. Okay, how? That sounds nutty. What does that mean? How can we do that? We do that knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so here we see this sequence for the development of character and godly hope in the believer. It starts with tribulation and it starts with our reaction to difficulty and struggle in this life. What does it say? It says that we celebrate. I'm thankful that that this translation says celebrate. Another says exalt. So I always feel like I have to stop and explain what exalt means, but celebrate is great, right? It's it's rejoicing. That literally we're called because of the hope of God, real hope, anchored hope, truth-inspired hope, right, that when tribulation comes, and I'm still in the phase of the tribulation where I can't even yet see how God's going to work something good out of this, I can celebrate. Why? How can you do that? That seems crazy. Well, it's, it's because of this process that's tried and true. It's because I know that every time tribulation comes, I'm going to have an opportunity for what? What does the Bible say, friends? Perseverance. Well, can... Do I get a chance to persevere if I don't have something to persevere through? No, that's the point. And here then you'll see perseverance gives way to this character, a proven character building. Go through the entirety of your Bible, friend, Genesis, Revelation. If you find one, let me know. I've been looking for a long time. I've not been able to find another prescription for character building in all of the scriptures. Then perseverance through difficulty. It checks out really if you think about it, doesn't it? That checks out, right? So you've got tribulation, giving way to perseverance, that develops character and then comes in this word that we're looking for. Hope, and that hope does not disappoint. So what we're talking about here, friends, when I'm talking about godly hope, it's, it's not the same kind of ignorant, fanciful, well, I hope it works out for the best type situation I was in at the top of the vert ramp. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a hope that it's, it's, it's anchored to a series of truths, right? It's anchored to the fact that God has many, many times said, I will do this, and then he's done it, right? Throughout the scriptures, first and foremost, but then in our own lives as well, right? So we see that through our ancestors in the faith, but also in our own lives, hope comes through a process. And the question is, Should Zacharias have had that hope? Why is it such a big deal that Zacharias doubts for even a second what Gabriel the angel has to say here? So funny how this happened. Last night, I I just chose to read this same text, Luke 1, 5 through 20, to Natalie and the kids, uh, kind of before bed, you know, time in Scripture. And Max, uh, as I get done with it, you know, so I open up the floor, what do you guys think? And Max says, yeah, uh, his wife was over in the corner laughing when this happened. I was like, well, buddy, you've got some stories confused. You're thinking about Abraham and Sarah, but... I said, dude, that's the exact thing I'm going to share with our church family tomorrow. That's, you made the connection that I want to make sure we make. Why was it such a big deal that Zacharias, when an angel comes and tells him, you're going to have a child with your wife in your old age, that he doubted it for one second? Why is that maybe more of an insult than it would have been? Because Zacharias is a priest. He's a priest to what? The people of Israel. The people of Israel came from who? This guy called Abraham, like the father of the faith, the one that God said, I'm going to give you a son, and through that son, all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Like, come on, Zacharias. Like, we know God can give babies to old people, we know this. This has been done, okay? If you, if you should not need, it shouldn't even be that hard of a stretch in hope to believe that God can fulfill a promise like that. Brother, what do you question Gabriel about? He's already done that before. There should have been a solid hope based on the, the, the story of his ancestors and God's faithfulness before. Zacharias shouldn't have had to bat an eye here. Now, let's be humble because we were already told Zacharias and Elizabeth, they, they walked in righteousness before God, man. These, these, were not, these were not spiritual schleps by any means. So let us not, let us not get, jump on Zacharias this morning like, oh, Zacharias, shame, 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 buddy. You definitely should have seen that Abraham connection. No, 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 because we each daily are tempted to forget the hope that we should have in God. Right? Right? And you might be thinking, well, what do you mean? Should we have hope in God? Should we have hope in whatever we are going through? And friends, this, that, brings, that brings me down to why it's so appropriate in the Advent season to focus at least for one week on this, this good aspect of what comes in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Christ, right? This, this reality of real, tangible, immovable hope should we, should we have that? Should you have that going out of here today and facing whatever it is you're going to face this week or picking back up to face whatever you've been facing for the week prior? Should we have that kind of hope? I would propose to you, yes. Because even if you don't have some specific example from the scriptures or even some specific Specific example from your own life or specific example from the life of someone that you know who walks with God that would tell you God will be faithful in the midst of the specifics of the situation that you're going through, even if you don't have that. Friends, what we do have is this. As we focus in this Advent season, we, have, we, have, we understand this, that God made a promise. All the way back in Genesis 3, he started to tip his hand and to say, look, a seed is going to come of that woman that's going to bruise this serpent's head. Salvation's going to come. And he kept tipping his hand over and over again in different ways, pointing to the fact that salvation was going to come through a Messiah that he appointed and that he ordained. And those prophecies got more and more specific as they went. And here's what happened He said a Messiah would come, and a Messiah came. He said a Messiah would come and do wonderful things, and he did wonderful things. He said a Messiah would come and die, and he did. And he also rose from the grave. And so, my friends, what I'm saying is, if God, if he can pull the gospel off, okay, if he can pull faithfulness to the promise of his gospel off, if he can deal with the cosmic problem of sin for eternity, he can for sure handle our temporary earthly issues. What I'm saying to you today, dear friends, is the same hope Zacharias surely should have had as the Gabriel angel delivered the message that you, yes, and your old wife, you guys are going to have a baby, and you're going to call him John, and he's going to be the one that prepares the way for him. As he should have been able to take that right in stride, friends, whatever, whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you're facing, my hope for you today is that you will be able to walk in that real godly kind of hope that comes from the reality that you have have persevered through tribulation before. You have seen God's faithfulness before. Remember, don't let the enemy or your poor memory steal from you God's faithfulness in the past. Reach for those things and know that your hope, it's not weak. It's not fanciful. It's based in a God who never fails to keep his promises. And if there was one he wasn't going to, this is my point. Advent just brings us right down to to an, an unavoidable reckoning point, okay? If he can keep the promise of the incarnation, if he can keep the promise of the crucifixion, if he can keep the promise of the resurrection and then giving of the Holy Spirit to those who would come to him by faith, if he can keep that promise, if he can keep the promise that he's going to deal with the problem of sin and the brokenness of the world friends, he can deal with anything we're going through. Then his promise to work all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose, that can be a hope that we cling to no matter, no matter how violent the storm seems around us, no matter how high the waves seem around us. A fairly well-known saying, Charles Spurgeon is often credited with it. I don't know if he was the first, but, I'm going to quote him. He's the one I heard say it first. He said, I've learned to kiss the waves that crash me against the rock of ages. Come on, friends. Let's, come on. That's hope. When you get to the point where you turn and you smile as the maelstrom comes, you turn to kiss the wave knowing it's going to press you to the place you always were intended to be anyways, at the feet of the rock of ages, the Savior, the Holy One, the one you always needed, and the one that we are perennially tempted to think we can do without. That's why I will rejoice in tribulation, and I will rejoice in difficulty, because I know it is used as an instrument of my sanctification, and as an instrument of my humbling that keeps me right where I belong, in the shadow of the Almighty, where I'm called to dwell. Thank God for his gospel. Thank God for the hope it provides. It's the only thing that can. May we cling to it, friends. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for this first angelic announcement. Thank you, God, that you made sure your word is recorded with every detail that we needed. Thank you for all of the, the small detail we see throughout even this story as Gabriel visits Zacharias. Lord, help us be a people full of hope. Help us be a people who celebrate in the midst of trial and tribulation, knowing that it's giving us the opportunity for perseverance. God, it is so hard. We wanna be honest right now before you. It is so hard to see perseverance as an opportunity. We are tempted to grumble. We are tempted even to doubt that you're being faithful. We are tempted to lose grip of the hope, that solid, immovable hope you have given us in Christ. We are tempted to these things, but please help us. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the name of Jesus and to hope in every situation. Help us to rejoice in tribulation. Rejoice at the opportunity for perseverance. Rejoice in the sometimes painful process of character building. And for us to see that you give us a hope, a hope that does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out on us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this real hope. It is a gift far more precious than we can describe, far more precious than we could ever thank you for. But Lord, help us just to, by faith, reach out with our hands, receive it, walk in it, and glorify you as we do. Master, we love you. It's only because you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio.